I absolutely loved this episode. Mike has got such a great way of explaining the macro and also the data behind some of the reasons that his company has targeted specific property sectors in the UK. He gives a fantastic advice for anyone looking to build a business, raise capital, and even get started in real estate. So if you like this episode, please, please, please do me a favor. Can you make sure you subscribe and you follow the Rodcast on your preferred podcast platform, whether that's Spotify, Apple, iTunes, etc. And if you could leave us a five-star review on Spotify or Apple, that would be amazing. I love bringing you great guests like Mike. And the more subscribers and good reviews we have, the more amazing guests we can bring you for each episode. Now, let's get on with the episode. Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Rodcast. My guest today is a founding partner of a UK-based real estate investment firm, Castle Forge. Under his leadership, they have invested a billion pounds of asset value into the UK and Europe, combining research-led investment themes with vertical integration and in-house operating platforms. So I'm very pleased to welcome Michael Kovacs. Welcome, Mike. Thanks very much, Rod. Thanks for having me. So, Mike, how does someone with an American accent who's clearly from the States, who once worked in M&A at Blackstone, become a founding partner of a real estate investment manager specialising in the UK and Europe real estate scene? Life happens, I think, is probably (laughs) the short answer. I'll give you the longer answer. I was working in M&A in New York, and a group that was investing and looking to rebuild its office over here in Europe, an American group, ended up basically offering me, hey, come out to Europe. We've just sent some guys out there to, to help with the office rebuild. And, you, you know, do you want to carry their bags? And that was it. And so what was supposed to be a two-year job turned into the last, I think, 17 years now. So, so yeah, that's the, that's the longer version of Life Happens. Fantastic. And so how did then you go from that to, I mean, was that Castle Forge when you came over or did you then, I think you started no, that later on? No, no. So there's a group called Westbrook, which is still going strong. Very good organization based out in the US with a global reach. And I think that myself and a colleague of mine, we said to ourselves, it's 2010 now. We'd learned a lot in a very short period of time, probably just enough to be dangerous or to think we knew what we were doing, and decided that we wanted to go out and do, you know, central London office development on our own. And that was, there was a moment where we looked at each other and said, should we go back to the States, both of us are American, or do we, you know, do we stay out here in Europe? And I think we saw such a compelling opportunity to invest in offices right after the financial crisis that we decided to stay here and see what happened. And, you know, um, we've kind of morphed over the last 12 years that Castle Forge has been going from a central London office developer to a fund manager doing more than just offices and more than just operating in central London. So, yeah, there was a a stepping stone 
but at the same time, you know, we were quite young and inexperienced when we started, and, and but it's been it's been a great it's been a great twelve years. What a ride! And so, like you mentioned there, that you chose offices in central London in two thousand and ten. And I know you're very kind of. I was really excited to have this interview because we had a brief chat the other week, and I could see how kind of research led you are. At that point in time, was there a lot of research going on from your end, and what was it about the office market in central London? that made you want to dive in there? I mean, there certainly wasn't as much research as there is now, but the thesis was very simple. At that time, you could buy an office building in central London in a good location, and you can totally refurbish it, gut renovate it, you know, almost as if it were a new building. And the cost at the end of the day, including the acquisition and the construction cost, was at that time less than it cost to build a building and if you were getting the land for free. And so we kind of looked at ourselves and said, that doesn't seem like it should be the case. Like that, that shouldn't be possible. And so, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a very, very difficult time in the market. And I think a lot of people were always asking us, yeah, but once you finish it, are you going to lease it? And so there were a lot of question marks around leasing, but fundamentally we were looking at that and saying, oh, it can't possibly be the case that you can basically recreate a new building for less than it cost to build the new building, even if somebody gave you free land in central London. So that was that, that was the research that went into it. It was all about 30 seconds or a minute of, of real of research. Well, fair enough. I mean, what, what that says to me is it's a massive barrier to entry from anyone else kind of going, hey, let's build a, an office in, in London. So yeah, great, yeah. great idea. So how have things shifted since then? What is it that you're working on at the moment? What is it you're investing in now and, and why? Right. So, you know, like I said, we started life as a, as a central London office developer. And, you know, now we're a much larger organization. There's there's almost 50 of us here in the office. And we, we, we've kind of progressed in terms of how we have expanded into different geographies and different asset classes. So not only offices, we also invest in offices all across the country. We invest in PRS or, or residential, multifamily, you'd call it in the US. Yep. And we invest in hotels. And then we have a couple of interesting alternative sectors that we're looking at and about to do some, some investments into the cold storage, life sciences, and data center space. So lots of different asset classes. And then in terms of geographies as well, like I said, it started with central London and then moved out to the rest of the UK and then moved out into continental Europe. So we've also invested in Belgium, the Netherlands, Germany, and we're looking at other locations in Europe. So expanded both product type and also geography over time. And what is it that makes you choose a specific location? Because the, there's a pretty vast array of locations there. What is it about the specific sector and that location that you wanna see before you pull a trigger on investing or deploying capital? I mean, I think at the heart of everything that we do, we are always looking at what is our cost basis. That's important. You know, we're a value-driven investor. At the same time, you know, what is our stabilized yield on costs that we can end up at? So, and we love to see a project where, you know, we can refurbish it, retenant it, stabilize the building, and our and 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 the and the, and the income that we're getting each year is oftentimes in excess of eight, nine, ten percent 
even in the residential space, which is really difficult to do, but certainly in the office space as well. And so when we look at continental Europe, we, we kind of look across the market and say, all right, where would our product that we're building in the UK work really well in Europe for whatever reason? And then where can we also get a really nice yield on cost in terms of when we finish the refurbishment or the building turnaround? So a lot of it is financial driven. It's also you know macro driven from a country perspective, right? I think we're looking for markets with a lot of, in the office market, for example, a lot of small businesses, a lot of businesses also that are spread throughout the country, right? If you look at Germany, it doesn't have one central city. It's got a lot of different cities. And so, you know, the idea that you can invest in each of these cities and they all have really good quality businesses that are all, you know, I don't know, at least national or, or, or regional European or, or even multinational in their own right, that, that's really, that's, that's a great feeling. Um, so I think that what we're looking for is, you know, really good financial return, but also, you know, who could really benefit from, from the product that we're selling? Because at the end of the day, really, it's a customer business. And I guess that comes down to the addressable market, really. Is that, is that right? Or is that one thing you'd look at is how big can this, can this market grow over the short term? Yeah, you're right. Oh, short term and long term, right? I mean, at the end of the day, we think we've got a really great product in the office market. For example, we have a service office or flexible office business, very similar to what, you know, we would, we would say similar to the model of like a WeWork or a Regis or whatever, but, you know, we like to think that it's a better product. I love but the caveat. Oh, sorry, I was going to say, I love the caveats that have to come now when anyone mentions WeWork. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, they were the, the savior or the darling of the industry a couple of years ago. But actually, it's funny, if you go on our website, we've, we've kind of, we've, we've sniped at them for the last couple of years. We wrote a paper back in 17 and one in 19, basically saying that this is, this is all going to end in tears. Yeah. And it did, for the reasons we said, which is fundamentally, it's a great product. Like tenants love it, but at the same time, if you've capitalized it incorrectly, you know, then you're going to get into a whole, into a whole mess, and, and that's what ended up happening. But in terms of the your question about addressable market, absolutely. So we're looking at where in Europe would flexible office currently be at a low level of penetration, you know, two to five percent across the market, and where can we see it being adopted? by a lot of different companies. And we're seeing that in the UK, we're seeing that in Germany, we're seeing that in Belgium. I, I think service office is gonna be a very big part of the market going forward, certainly bigger than it is today. And how does that differ to maybe other markets like the US and things like that, do you think? Oh, let's see. Actually, funny enough, in the UK, I mean, flexible offices in the UK is probably the most progressed because it started here, you know, really IWG, really got everything going, right? And that, and that was obviously based here. And I think that was a reflection of, or a reaction to a 25-year FRI leasing market in offices, right? Nobody wanted to take 25-year lease, or, you know, many companies couldn't. So I think that Regis originally was probably born out of necessity. And so as a result, the UK got a head start on that. But I think the US is catching up. I, I think most businesses don't want to take longer-term leases if they can avoid it. And most businesses, I'm not talking about your Google and sure. you know, big multinational companies, they love to have you know their corporate culture wherever it is at their headquarters office. But I mean, if you're talking about a 10 or 20 or 30 person small medium sized business located in Leeds or located in you know Bremen in Germany where we've got our building or located in The Hague in, in the Netherlands, a lot of those you know, businesses are asking, why am I taking a five-year lease and financing my entire fit-out? Why, why can't you do the financing of the fit-out for me and I take a one-month 
yeah. go one lease. And if I like it, I stay. And if I don't, and it doesn't work for me anymore, I leave. And I think that we've responded to that. And, and by the way, that's no different than the U.S. I think there's a lot of businesses in the U.S. that, that have a very similar mindset. So fundamentally, it's driven by a tenant need. And what do you think has changed with the pandemic, home working, kind of, or remote working even? How do you, well, like, that's what's changed, but how, how do you think that has affected the office market in general? Because we've got a massive difference to what's going on in, for example, prime central London offices trading at the lowest yields they've traded at ever versus mm. your flexible office space in I don't know, a secondary or tertiary town or city? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think that, so our view is that there's going to be in the office market, I'd say a bifurcation, but but I'll, I'll just generally talk about a splitting of the market. There's going to be real winners and real losers in the office market going forward. It, it, I, I don't think you can kind of paint the entire market with the, with the same brushstroke. So you're going to get and we've seen it, you know, the A-plus buildings in central London, like the best of the best, those rents are higher than they were pre-COVID right now. And, and by the way, that's pretty much the same across any large metropolitan market in the world. Even New York, where, you know, they say that, oh, you can't get people back to the office. Yeah, but actually there's some buildings that are setting record rents. And then there's kind of everything else. And the everything else is really struggling. And so you have really a focus from, I think, a lot of multinational businesses on these best of the best buildings, and they're paying up for it. And there's a reason they're paying up for it, right? They've got to give employees a reason to want to come into the office. Because, look, you have Wi-Fi, you have coffee at home. Everybody realized that, and everybody, you know, saw that, yes, you can work from home for 18 months or whatever it is. So, okay, why do you want me to come into the office? For what reason? To do what? And by the way, it better be a nice office because I'm not going to, you know, spend an hour commuting or something like that to, to come into a pretty miserable office that's depressing. So I think that a lot of businesses, especially the big multinationals, have looked at the office and said, okay, it's no longer a function that sits within our the, the remit of our CFO, and it's not a cost center anymore. Actually, this is a place where culture is set. This is a place where we give employees a reason to come back. This is where collaboration happens. And it moves towards HR and people and the C-suite, the CFO or CEO. You know, th this drives everything. And, and it's not a huge part of their overall budget, if you really think about it. So I think that's where A-plus offices are moving towards. But if, but if you don't have that, Right, and you are just free coffee on the internet. Well, then why are people coming into to your office? And then on the other hand, you get flexible offices, right? And that's I think where a lot of people who were traditionally in five-year leases or ten-year leases, they're ultimately going to move into because again, they're having that conversation of, wait a second, why am I fitting the space out and owning this for three years or five years if I don't even know where I'm going to be as a business in three to five years? Let me just take flexible space because I think it's attractive for us. And are you finding that those businesses are prepared to pay more than they were, I guess, pre-pandemic levels for that flexibility? I think so. But I also think that the way they're using space actually probably allows them to not have to pay more, but to use their space differently. Here, I'll give you an example. So imagine I was a 20-person marketing design business based in... I don't know, Bristol or Leeds. Yeah. And my world pre-pandemic was I need to take 20 desks and have a bunch of meeting rooms. And so therefore I need, I don't know, 3,000 feet. 
And if I take my 3,000 feet times my rent rates and service charge, it equals X per year. That's my total liability to house 20 people. And by the way, then I have to fit it out and pay for it. And then even more ridiculously, I have to rip the entire fit out at the end so that the tenant or the next person can do the same thing. So now post-pandemic, here's where we are. That same business might say to themselves, do you know what? Not everybody's in the office every single day at the same time. And so why do I need 20 desks? That's insane. Maybe 10. And then by the way, if I do have people who come in and it's more than you know, it, it, it is 20 people because, you know, look, I mean, you can say people come in two days a week, but what if they all come in at the same time, right? So fine. But you can take these kind of passes that they can work throughout the building. And, and at the end of the day, you've effectively cut the number of desks you need in half. Plus the building has the meeting rooms that are shared. It has all the Zoom booths. It has all the, you know, everything that you would need and that you would normally put in your own building and space, but you don't need to now. And those businesses are finding that actually the building quality is better, the flexibility is better, and then net-net, they're probably spending the same amount of money that they're spending on the old type of office. So why on earth wouldn't they do that, especially when it lowers their day one upfront costs? So I think that's what we're seeing. It's not necessarily they're paying more for flexibility, but they're finding that they can use the space differently and then get back to the same position they were at before, but it's just better space. So flipping that question on its head, are landlords of offices getting higher rents for that space than they were pre-pandemic then, would you say? Uh, if you are a flexible office operator, yes. But if you are a traditional landlord who cannot offer that, no, because you need to get somebody in to do it for you, right? And they're not gonna pay more than the market rent. And actually rents for that kind of space are falling. Yeah. So if you're a traditional landlord, no, you're probably gonna see a reduction in rents. And the value is going to accrue to the operator. Absolutely. Okay, brilliant. So in turn, you kind of mentioned earlier a bit about the macro and you're obviously, you obviously identify certain sectors. What is more important to you? Is it investing with good management? So capable people who have a proven track record, or is it investing into a good sector where kind of like rising tides will lift all ships kind of thing? Cool. It's a bit of both. And I know that's an unsatisfying answer, but it, it really is. I would say, okay, look, two ends of the spectrum there. John Gray at Blackstone always says, has said, I'm not telling anything that, you know, he wouldn't say on an earnings call as well. So this is not, you know, the secret sauce to Blackstone, but that the, the macro beats the micro all day long, right? So if you were investing in, I don't know, let's say Austin, Texas or something like that in the last 10 years, you would have seen amazing returns because the whole market benefited from everything that was happening there, whether it's tech or whether it's energy, the sort of energy revolution that happened in, in the U.S. It's like that you, you could have just, well, there were very good investors there who made a lot of money, but equally you probably could have kind of bought anything and done pretty well. Yeah. But if you don't have those tailwinds, Right? Or you pick a sector or you pick a geography that doesn't necessarily get those tailwinds, and then you have to fight for and manufacture your own returns. You want to be able to do that too. Right? And having a great partner with the operational capabilities is super important too. Right? So, another quote you know, there was a, a guy, Joe Roberts, who ran a company called JER, which was big in Europe probably 20 years ago. But he always said that I'd rather have an okay deal and a great partner than I would a, an amazing deal with a mediocre partner, 
right? Because when the going gets tough, that partner is going to be able to manufacture those returns for you. So I, I know, you know, it's like, I don't know which one I'd rather pick having the ability to generate alpha or the ability to pick tailwinds and, and generate beta. I guess our response to that is, can we do both? So that's why we have the research function that, that I think is able to look at the market and say, all right, where's the world going to be in 10 years from now or 15 years from now? And what are the sectors that I think are going to do well or not based on where the world is going? Sure. And then, okay, once I pick those sectors, stock selection also becomes important. And the operational capability to have a competitive advantage becomes important or, you know, to sustain, well, why me versus some other commodity product that somebody can go to? So if you can, if you can nail those two together, you've got a pretty powerful combination. So in terms of kind of, I guess, some of those, those points you mentioned earlier, you're investing in PRS, hotels, and also some alternative sectors like data storage, sorry, data centers and cold storage. What, what makes you decide on what sector to invest in? What, what, are the, what are the specific kind of metrics or specific data that you're looking at? And in the same instance, what would you have to see to change your mind to either pull out of those investments or look to deploy capital somewhere else? So, I mean, I think everything starts from, you need to understand what your own institutional capabilities are to begin with, right? So we started life as office investors. It would be very hard for us to, you know, with, with I don't know, five people or 10 people that we had six, seven years ago or something to say, you know what, actually, we're going to put the offices stuff aside. Let's now become specialists in data centers or something like that. So I think to start with, you need to have a realistic understanding of what you can even do as an organization. So even if I thought that investing in, you know, building satellites or whatever, like like Elon Musk is doing was great. Okay, I'm not a rocket scientist, so I can't just pivot into that sector to begin with. So I think there's some sort of path dependency of, as, from an institutional perspective. So like, what can I even do in the first place? Mm -hmm. All right, then you start to say, where would I like to go? And that's where even, you know, building a business or growing a business is really, that, that's, where the, that's where the difficulty comes. It's like, well, that's where I wanna go, point B. I'm at point A, uh, how do I get there? And so for us, that was all about, you know, combining, I think, the ability to build businesses and, and, to, and to grow our business into the sectors that we thought were really interesting. So we spend a lot of time up front trying to figure out where those sectors are and also how big you mentioned the word the addressable market is, right? How long do we think those tailwinds are going to last? Because if we're going to kind of move our business into something else, you, you have to have a view that that's going to be something that you might get there in five years from now or even 10 years from now. Well, is it gonna be there in five years from now or 10 years? Is the opportunity gonna be there? So I think that's very important is to recognize how long does that market have in terms of where those tailwinds are? Because if I think it's only a short window of opportunity, I may not want to build a business in that sector. So I think that's the first important thing. The other thing is, you know, it's kind of like the old adage of, are you a growth investor or are you a value investor? You know, and, and what's your sort of, what's your preference? I, I think, again, it's, it's a bit of both. It's like, you, you can't just be only a value investor because what you're going to, you know, okay, here, here's a good example. So over the last five, seven years, logistics and distribution 
has totally overtaken retail as the way to get goods from one person to another, right? And if, if you were a multi-strategy investor at that time, and you didn't look at that and say, okay, well, this is basically just logistics stealing from retail, then, you know, then I think that you, you, you might not have said to yourself, I, I'm going to believe that rental growth, right? But the rental growth was happening and it did happen. And the reason it happened is because, you know, people just needed a new asset class and a good, a new way of getting goods from one person to another. So there are times where that's important, but there's other times, like I said, in 2010, where you look at the market and think, but wait, my cost basis implies that I'm getting land value for less than zero. That doesn't make sense either. And so I think that, you know, you have to be comfortable being both a value investor and a growth investor at the same time. And so a lot of the thesis development that we do, or a lot of the themes that you have are where there's growth in that sector. Like look at data centers, right? I, I don't know if you can kind of look at a data center and say, I'm getting it from, you know, less than build costs or less than replacement costs. You kind of have to look at that and say, well, wait a second, something like 20% of all processes that businesses run have, has been digitized to this point in time. And then 20% of all digitization has moved to the cloud. So we're like 5% of the way towards where we need to be in terms of cloud computing. I don't know like the ins and outs of that, but what I can probably tell you is that there's a lot of, there's a lot of room to go, right? Yeah. So I think you have to look at that and say, I, 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 I kind of see where the world is going. I'm kind of comfortable with the idea of buying into growth, not just necessarily value, 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 because sometimes growth is value if other people are underappreciating that growth. So that's, I think those are the, that's the basis for what you need to do in terms of, you know, trying to figure out kind of where the winds are going. Yeah. I think I think a really key point you touched on there that people kind of often forget about is is kind of how long are you going to be in that market because real estate is very illiquid and it takes a long time to kind of get deals done and things like that so I think absolutely like understanding that what's happening now is great but what's really relevant is what's going to happen over the period of time that we're invested in this asset class. And I think often people kind of forget that. Yeah, re really, really interesting stuff. I've seen a quote of yours from one of your papers, which talked about one of the reasons you were getting into UK hotels was because of the growing middle class coming out of China. Do you want to just explain what that meant or what that means? Sure. I mean, and it's it, it's it's kind of it's probably broader than that. It's it's more the global middle class everywhere. You know, we have, you know, we we've kind of looked at where the world's going, and you know, you you could poke holes in this and say that temporarily there may be a slowdown in in all of this. But at the same time, you know, I think longer term we sort of see this happening. But you know, the number of people around the world that are going to be earning between fifty and a hundred thousand dollars a year is growing massively. Right. And that, I mean, that's kind of a level that we picked, but it's, it's around the level where somebody can say, look, I live in X place in the world, but I really would like to travel internationally. And I think I'm going to go to Paris or I'm going to go to London, and then I'm going to fan out and see the rest of the UK. And I just don't think that the amount of hotel infrastructure, tourism infrastructure has kept pace with how quickly the number of people in the world that can afford that is growing. And so what I mean by that is, 
you know, if you thought about, okay, there's going to be a tremendous explosion of kind of wealthier people at the global middle income class out of East Asia or South Asia or Southeast Asia, and they want to travel to the UK and they're going to go to a city like Edinburgh because it's beautiful, where do they stay? And if you're only if you only have a hotel stock that caters for American or North American and European travelers and domestic travelers in the UK who want to go to that place, well then you know you're going to have a shortage of supply, frankly, in terms of where people are, are you know, in terms of how much demand there is for that kind of hotel product. So I think the idea was broadly this: these long-term trends don't necessarily change and reverse very quickly. So it's likely that in five or 10 years from now, there will be more people in the world who have more money to travel. And if you can prepare for that now, then you are going to put yourself in a really good position. And look, we saw that this summer. I, I, there's, there was a massive influx of, of, of tourism from North America, from domestic UK travel up to Edinburgh and from, and from Europe. And, and, and this is a point where China's locked down, right? I mean, wait until that changes, or doesn't as the case may be, but, you know, I think that, I mean, ultimately, I think it will. But the, the, the reality is that if you want a good value for money, tourist-driven experience in the UK or in continental Europe, which is where we're probably going to go next on the hotel side, that, that to me, is going to be in short supply relative to the people who will want that over the next five to 10 years. You've talked kind of before about recession fears and how they're kind of short-term issues and you're not too worried about them because you're investing for more, uh, well, I guess a longer term, where even if it's a five-year outlook or something like that. So I guess first question is how long are you looking to invest in some of these asset classes for from the outset? Do, is that predetermined from the start? And secondly, how do... What do you make of the current situation in terms of the pound sliding this week to the lowest it's been in kind of 40 years? And do you think that that creates more risk or more opportunity for the UK real estate? Well, that's a really, that, that's the, the million dollar question. I, you know, I, I don't want to sit here and be blasé about, yeah, the pound sliding or, or sort of the macro conditions. They, they don't look great, to be perfectly honest. You know, and look, we're historically, we've been a value investor and been more bearish and negative on the market in terms of our general orientation. And I, I, I heard recently, I think Stanley Druckenmiller saying that he, he is a, his, the history of that firm is sort of him living in the darkness, right? I mean, he has a, a bearish outlook. So, so do we, I think, generally. We're, we're more pessimistic than optimistic, and which at this point in time is, is easy to probably take a view that that is going to be the, the short term. I, I think you're right that investing for the long term is important, but if you can't get through the short term, there is no long term, right? So I remember a lot of people telling us like after 2008 and the financial crisis, especially as values recovered and, and offices did well afterwards, they would always, you, you'd talk to some people who kind of lost a bunch of assets at that time and they say, oh, you know, I would have come out fine in the end if, if I'd only held on to the asset. And you're thinking that is the job of real, you know, like your job was to hold on to the asset. 
because anybody in the long term is going to be ostensibly fine on real estate if you're picking a sector that's got growth to it, right? But it's like, well, what about the interim and those dips, right? So holding on to the asset is the most important job that you have in real estate. I think that's going to be difficult for a lot of people over the coming couple of years. I really do. And I think that that's going to be what leads to a lot of disruption in the market is the ability to hold on to those assets. And the reason is, you know, people would have financed buildings at even what they, even what would have been a conservative level of leverage, you know, four or five years ago, you start to double interest rates and you realize that you can't pay and you can't service the debt, the interest costs quite like you could four or five years ago. And then that means that the bank says, well, you know, I'm not going to finance you that much. I'm going to finance you less. And if it comes up for a refinancing, now you have to put more equity into the deal. So I think that it's, there's going to be a bit of a domino effect over the next couple of years, especially if some of these asset classes are challenged in terms of their income, right? I mean, you saw retail and what happened to that over the last five years. Shopping centers that were, you know, yielding, I don't know, four, five, six million of income, suddenly the income goes down to two million or three million because they're half empty. I'm not necessarily saying that that happens to every single office building, but there's probably quite a few office buildings where it does happen. So on one hand, you're fighting drops in NOI and income. On another hand, you're fighting doubling of interest rates. Like, how do you square that circle, right? And, and what happens? And I think what ends up happening is a lot of people just end up losing the assets or the assets are sold by the bank or whatever the case may be. It, it's a very different dynamic than post-GFC. Well, I, I think you made a really good point. It's not just the loss of revenue. It's also the increasing costs, not just from finance, but also from their other operational costs. I mean, you've got business rates to pay. You've got kind of energy bills to pay on things that you're not doing. So I think, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a crazy time, really, at the moment. I mean, just, I don't know, the, a difference between 3.5% and 4.5% on an interest rate just just paying the interest is 28% difference on, on your monthly co- finance costs. And, and that's, a, oh, absolutely. that's a huge increase. And so how are you mitigating those things? I mean, how, what are you yeah. doing in your business to mitigate those risks at the moment? You're absolutely right. Those, that's a big difference. And actually, it's, it's even more stark when you look at what, where, like, let's say the five-year swap was a year ago or yeah. a year and a quarter ago, it was at 50 basis points, and now it's at three, three and a half. So even if margin didn't go anywhere, even if banks weren't scared about where the next year is going to be and increase your margin, you're 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 basically talking even if your margin was three and your swap was zero ish, you know you've doubled your interest rate over the last and you haven't even done anything to margin yet, right? Then the margins increase and it really is going to double or, or go up more than that. So okay, your question: what are, what are we doing? You know, one of the things that we've been focused on over the last couple of years is trying to generate assets that can, as I said, kind of always historically, that generate a high yield on cost, unlevered yield on cost. So taking you know, debt aside, can you generate eight, nine, 10% plus on, on your investment? So you invest a, you know, a million, you're making 80,000 a year, 100,000 a year. That gives you a pretty good cushion in terms of your ability to service that debt. I mean, there's, there's, two, there, there's two types of investments that you could have made over the last five years or 10 years. There's the ones where you know, you're, you're kind of depending not on income, but on capital value growth, or at least margin on your development in order to make money. So I'll give you an example. If you built something to a four cap rate, right? And then the cap rates were at three, 
that's a 30% margin and that that's great, right? So, you know, you could develop to a four, sell it at three, boom, you're done, right? Or you, you could do the same thing at 10 and sell it, I don't know, seven or whatever. Yeah. And 10 to seven and four to three are kind of the same thing, except when the market stops, right? Because then you're sitting on a four. Do you like that four? Are you able to refinance that four? Right. Whereas, do you like that 10? Yeah, I like that better. I'm able to finance that 10. I'm able to service my debt at 10, even if that seven flows out to eight, 10, even if you can't actually even sell it, at least you're sitting on the 10. So I think that investors in this market over the next couple of years would probably be in a really good position if they focused on what is your cash flow yield and how much of your return, how much of your total return is coming from in income versus how much is coming from capital value growth and development profit development margin. And if you can position your portfolio to get more of your property in return, your total return from income, then you, 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 then you can hold for longer and, and holding doesn't hurt as much. I think that's a really, really important point about kind of, focusing more on the income side of things at, at this point in time. I mean, how, I mean, what percentage of those total returns would you like to see, for example, your business focusing on the income versus the capital value uplift? Yeah. I mean, so everything that we do is, is kind of a turnaround situation. So there is an element of margin or capital value growth from the perspective of like repositioning a building. But at the yep. same time, if you're able to get more than half your total return coming from income, that's that's a that's a great position to 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 be I, in if you can do it. I guess you've got to take it from the I don't know the the point of which you want your your investment to mature. So if you're thinking right, we're going to be in this for ten years, and then you you work back an IRR of those total returns and look at how much came from from actually the income versus how much came from that value uplift from the start and and the capital growth going forward. But it's it's not an easy thing to forecast. <laughs> oh no, it's very difficult. It's very difficult, which is I think why you have to try to focus as much of your attention on income as you can, and also which and listen, we're in a, you know arguably an inflationary environment. So which of these income streams is also going to grow with inflation? Which are the ones that you're going to be able to reset and kind of pass your pass your pricing on to to your to, to your tenant? But yeah, it's a it's a I think it's a very challenging environment. I I haven't experienced a market like this before. Frankly, I, I mean, we can all read about what happened in the 70s, and we've written about a lot of kind of what happened the last time inflation was at 10%, and you know which sectors did well and which sectors didn't do well. But you know, really, not a lot of us in, in working today have been in this market. I think the guys who did and and and, and ladies who did well in in that market probably retired at this point. Right? They, they don't need to work, Absolutely. so they're not working. So so really, nobody that experienced this before is is actively working. So what are some of those sectors then that you believe are easier to pass costs on? Would you say residential would be would be one of them or not? I don't know. It depends. I think it is hard to, you know, to to it, it comes down to a lot of factors. Like what does actual wage growth look like? Exactly. And yeah. so are people going to earn five percent or ten percent more than they did last year if cost of living increased by five or ten percent more right? i think i'll give you an example of how we look at this when we're going into residential and it's it's definitely around affordability and, and really what we're looking at is 
for example, for a house price point of view, is is what's the percentage of someone's income that goes on servicing a mortgage? For, and we and we and we base that from first time buyers because we know that that only I think it's only forty percent of houses even have a mortgage. From a first time buyer point of view, how does that work? And then we'll also look at right what's been the base case, what's been the benchmark for I don't know the last thirty years, and then what are the other staples of of living? So. If you look at those staples of living being food, transport, energy, to a point internet now, I guess, what what are you, if, if for example, we know energy costs have increased, what, what staple does that come from? Does it come from your housing budget? Does it come from your food budget? Because look, if you're the richest 10%, it's going to come from your kind of discretionary spending. But if you're on the, on the poorer side, it's you don't have that choice. And, and what are your thoughts on that side of things? I think you're right. I think ultimately everybody is going to be economizing over the next couple of years. I don't think there's a, a sector at all that's going to be able to escape the fact that costs are increasing. And it really comes down to how fast are wages growing within that sector or within that income demographic. So we've done some research on this and Nominal wages over 2020 and 2021 did not do very well on, in the higher income deciles because maybe there is more of a cushion, right? And so people didn't necessarily fight for or push for wage increases that kept pace with, with inflationary pressures. But you did see actually quite substantial wage growth in the lower income demographic and deciles. And the reason was, you know, look, I, I you know, there's... Costs went up by 10%. I need 10% in my wages in order for me to continue to do this job. I think that I saw that Sainsbury's increased their, their wages across the board in London and outside of London between I think 5 and 15%. If you look at Amazon in the US, I, I, broadly speaking, I think they're increasing their wages because you know the reality is that you have to pay people a certain amount of money in order for them to be able to actually, you know, digest some of these cost of living increases. And I'm not saying necessarily that even that's going to, to help 100%, but I think you're right on a point of looking at affordability, right? And that's that's really where you have to start. You know, our average rent for our residential portfolio, it's, it's more kind of workforce housing oriented than it is middle and upper middle income. We, we wanted to avoid the upper kind of income profile, but, our average rent across the portfolio is something sub 500 pounds a month. And, you know, we look at that and we say, okay, well, what is that relative to the median income in Leeds or in Birmingham or in Liverpool or in Manchester or where we have the properties? And is that actually affordable from a tenancy perspective? Or is this just something that, you know, people are spending money on this rent because they're kind of flush with cash. And the minute that you pull that away, they have to start to economize on that. So I agree with you. I think it comes down to affordability at the end of the day, which is which is super important. And that's going to change where you are in the country, because if you're in a lower value area, it might be, I don't know, 30% of the household's income. But if you're in kind of Mayfair, it might be 50% because your other staples of living broadly on the whole are not going to change where you're living in the country so your food costs your sainsbury's costs your i don't know bt costs and things like that that's that's really interesting mike so look you've you've grown your business quite substantially over the 
past 12 years and you've clearly raised some capital. I think you raised a lot of capital from the US to deploy it over Europe. What's been the hardest thing about raising capital for investment? And what advice would you give to people that are out there with their property firms at the moment trying to raise capital for ventures? So the best advice I ever received on raising capital was from one of my professors who ran a real estate entrepreneurship class at the University of Pennsylvania. And he said, this is, this is kind of, this, this course was taken by a lot of people who just wanted to get into property development, who wanted to be a property developer. And first thing he said, the first day of class was, if you're the type of person who doesn't like hearing the word no, and if you're the type of person who can't hear the word no without becoming sort of glass half empty, you need to quit this class and go do something else with your life, right? Because you will not be a good property developer. So the best thing that people can do is get used to hearing the word no, because it's going to happen a lot. And, and ironically, it happens more when the opportunities are the best, sure, of course. right? When the opportunities are, are few and far between because the market's going well, everybody will tell you yes, but that may not be the right time to be investing. So I always like to think that the harder it is out there to raise capital, you know, the silver lining that you should be thinking about is it makes whatever you're going to be investing in probably better. So that's, that's what I would, that's the advice I would give people who are trying to raise capital in terms of the market right now, it is very difficult and challenging out there in the capital raising market globally. Yeah. But you know, ironically for the UK, that's not, that different than it has been for the last five to seven years. So what for the UK was very unique was, 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 was July, 2016, right. And the Brexit vote. And listen, I, I I don't have, honestly, I think it's actually too early to tell. And I don't really have an opinion politically on whether that was a good decision or not. But what I can tell you is that that uncertainty for three years until December 2019, when there was, you know, finally a parliamentary majority to, 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 to do something, yeah. was a very difficult time for inward investment into the UK. A lot of people were just saying, you know what, I'm not going to invest in the UK right now. I'm going to wait until there's some clarity on, on Brexit and what's ultimately going to happen, and then I'm going to invest. So 2016 to 19 was very difficult for raising capital for the UK. And then three months later, COVID happens. So I don't think that the last five, six, seven years has been particularly easy for the, I'd say six years, for the UK generally from a capital raising perspective, which actually does give me a lot of confidence that the market's not crazily overbought because, you know, you only get into really an overbought situation where capital is easy to come by. And I think maybe it has been easy in some sectors, but I think a lot of other sectors have seen capital very difficult to raise in the UK over the last six years generally. And how do you think it's going to be if kind of interest rates keep going up? Because, I mean, we're in a bit of a strange position here in the UK where we've got, we're pretty much kind of, it's a done deal that we're either in recession now or we're about to be. But also with this issue with the pound weakening, it's likely we're going to have to see rates continue to increase whilst being in a recession. So normally when you'd be in recession, it will be right. Rates are lower to try and uh, boost, boost the economy. So how do you think that will affect things? But at the same time, there's a lot of money out there at the moment. 
because of what's happened with the with the pandemic. So, what what are your thoughts there? From an investment perspective, sure, yeah. What I I don't think it's going to be easy. I, I think it is going to be difficult. I really do. I think that, and also I think this is a really different environment than what we saw post financial crisis. I mean, that was one where I, I can. Gosh, I mean, some of the stories of like the amount of leverage that that companies were getting to to do projects sometimes were over 100% of the cost, right? So you bought a building for 30 million, the bank gave you 31. Yeah. Now right. tell me how many people had sleepless nights about whether or not they should do that deal, <laughs> right? And the million, by the way, then got put in reserve for the fees that you were receiving as the developer. So you were basically getting paid to do it and the bank was taking 100% of the risk and if it didn't work out, and as long as you didn't give a personal guarantee, then you were fine. Yeah. And Right, so so that post GFC was like, all right, well, thirty fell, falls to twenty or whatever, twenty five. I don't know. So it's certainly less than the value of the debt at this moment in time. But interest rates have also fallen to zero, and so the bank sits there and says, "Look, I I know that it's not worth thirty. Maybe it's worth twenty five. But hey, you know." I'm not going to get anything else with this 25 million if I force you to sell the building and I'm going to lose money and my balance sheet can't handle it. And, you know, one of the quotes that I loved was, uh, you know, somebody at Blackstone at the time was, was saying, well, look, you can service a lot of debt when interest rates are zero. Yeah. So everybody kind of just sat there and said, well, this is better than the alternative of what I can do otherwise. So let me just pause. This is different. This is, this is now... You know, maybe the debt wasn't 30 and the property was 30. Maybe the debt was 15 and the property was 30. All right, so now that the property value falls to 20, the bank says, well, two things. Number one, if I forced you to sell the building, I'd get my 15 back, okay? So there's no loss from my perspective. My balance sheet's fine. Yeah. Your balance sheet isn't that great, but mine's fine. And maybe more importantly, if interest rates are now higher, Right. If if I don't know if guilts are four or five, whatever they are, why am I waiting here for you to pay me my three or four or whatever the margin was at the zero swaps? You know, from let me get my fifteen back and redeploy it. So I think that there's the banks have and the lenders have a completely different outlook here in terms of what their next best option was relative to the GFC. And so I think this is a very different environment than that. I'm not saying necessarily one is better than the other. I don't know what's ultimately going to happen. But I think at the end of the day, you do have to look at like, well, where are people's incentives in terms of being able to move on from this? Like, and is the lender going to be brutal about it? And they probably can be more brutal about it if they're covered more in terms of their principal balance and also if their next best opportunity of redeploying the capital into the capital markets at a higher interest rate or better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting, interesting. I mean, I guess the only point coming back to those swap rates is when now that the swap rates are higher, but also are we going to see banks get more margin out of savers and deposits? And you've got different lenders will base kind of their mortgage rates on, on kind of th probably three different things, swap rates, their ability, the, the amount of kind of margin they're getting from deposits and, and also probably competition for business. Are you getting money out the door? And we're in a strange yeah. time where actually 
there's been a huge amount of business being done by lenders. And if that starts to dry up, then what's going to happen? So, yeah, in, certainly kind of interesting times ahead and, and ones that are very, very difficult to call on that front. I, I agree with you. I think, look, at the end of the day, I think the most important thing in the property business is I, you, 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 you've got your, your assets and your liability side, right? So are you able on the liability side to hang on to your buildings, right? Do you have your capital structure in place that's sufficiently stable and sufficiently secure in order to even get the best out of your asset side? So that's the first question. And I think a lot of people are gonna struggle with that over the next couple of years. I think it is going to be difficult, especially with interest rates going up. And then of course, there's the asset side, right? And what I mean by that is, do your tenants get a good experience, right? Because for so long, we've all been sitting there with, it's sort of like offices is a good example, with a commodity product-ish. I mean, you could be a little bit better than the next person, your reception was a little bit better, but at the end of the day, what you're offering a tenant is like a 5,000 square foot white box, and then they fit it out themselves. So location is important, sure. You know, overall building quality is important, sure. But, you know, broadly speaking, it was a little bit more commoditized. Well, what about going forward? What about in a world where you can make that tenant experience the best that they've ever got? And you can be truly differentiated from everybody else. And that's just the office side. If you're talking about residential, same situation. If you're talking about, so it all comes down to, look, there is an end user at the end of the day, right? And how good of a job are you doing making that user's experience the best they've ever had? And so therefore they stay in your building. Right, and so, so there's two sides that you can work on over the next five years. Make sure you're safe and make sure you're secure and you can hold on to the building and then really focus your efforts on making the tenant's experience the best that it is. And if you can do those two, listen, the market may not do that great, but you'll certainly outperform the market. Yeah, 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 exactly. Fantastic. So, I mean, you told us about the great piece of advice for when raising capital, just get used to hearing the word no. What advice would you give to someone who's new coming into the property investment industry? Huh. Okay, so I think my experience at Blackstone, by the way, in MA and at Westbrook, specifically in the property side, I think was one of the most valuable experiences. Those two were the most valuable experiences I ever could have got. And my advice is. And my advice to our junior team and our mid-level team is always this, and, and I'll, I'll say it. At the end of six years of working, five years, you know, we were sufficiently capable of going out and doing a development from start to finish and raising the capital from start to finish and selling it and, and, and making money on it and doing it profitably. Now, I'm not saying that we were, we had all the answers. We made mistakes along the way, but the point was in a very short period of time, we got at least, you know, the full stack of knowledge to yep. some extent. And that's because I, I mean, realistically, I probably was working hundred hour weeks in both of those jobs. And I'm not saying that go out and burn yourself out. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is look at every job that you have at an entry level as a learning experience. And if you can, and I think I did, you know, but if you can effectively get 10 to 15 years worth 
of experience within the first five to six years of what you do, either by working more or working harder, if you're on the younger side, then all you've done is shortcut, you know, actually having to do five or 10 more years, right? And so, you know, I would, I would say, take every opportunity you can to learn and condense your learning into as short of a period of time as you possibly can. And don't worry about anything else. The other great piece of advice that that same professor gave to all of us in the class was, if you're young and you're starting out in this business, one of the best things that you can do is go work at a REIT. Go work at British Land, go work at Land Securities, you know, on the office side. Go work at, you know, London Metric or whatever if you want to go into Industrials or Seagrove because the, you will learn everything about the business at that kind of organization, right? You're buying stuff, you're developing stuff, you're leasing stuff, you're selling stuff, you're financing stuff, you're doing everything. And, you know, the, the reason he was saying that is because a lot of people would go into banking or private equity and, you know, they'd see dollar signs in their eyes and they'd say, ah, that's a much better. But his point was, look, you're, you know, whatever you're going to earn over the next couple of years isn't necessarily going to make or break your life. So why don't you go into a seat where you can learn the most about everything about this business in a short period of time? So that would be my recommendation is if, if you can, if you can try to, if you can try to overwork yourself for a short period of time, but see everything as a learning opportunity and then go to where you think you can learn the most in a short period of time. I really think that it's going to, it's going to benefit. It's going to benefit you in the long term. I, I, I love the delayed gratification kind of element to that. And also just about going and, and becoming capable in all those different facets. And I, I mean, yeah, I, I can't, I can't think of better advice to that. So absolutely fantastic. Look, Mike, I just want to, end on one last question that I like to ask mm -hmm. everyone that comes on, which is what's the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you in business? Hmm. Okay. I'll, I'll give a shout out here to Westbrook. You know, when we were leaving, I think the most important thing in any business is to maintain, if you can maintain good relationships with the people that you've worked with in the past. Really try to not let and end, end things on a sour note. I, I know this is such trite and hacky advice, but 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 it really did show through here. When we left the business, I think we had. I mean, I had like nothing. It, I had whatever I had in my bank account, and we had no deals. We had no income. We had no working cap like nothing right and so we were literally starting from scratch and saying how on earth am i going to last more than six months and bearing in mind it was 2010 so it wasn't a really great time in the market either and to westbrook's credit they they sat down with me and said look there's a lot of things that i think we can work on together <laughs> and you know this is you know, we see this as an opportunity. We really like you. We, we would love to figure out a way to work together, to obviously under a different guise. And if we can make something happen that works for us and works for you on a new project or whatever the case may be, then we think you've left in a good way and we'd love to continue working with you. And you know what? One of the first projects that we ever had, we, we partnered up with Westbrook and, and it was a successful project. 
And, and you know what, they were one of our first clients. And I think that that is so important that, you know, listen, we were, we were great in terms of how we left, but you know what, they could have equally not been so great. You know, people always feel that, you know, when somebody leaves your business, you know, you're Sure. Dead to me, that's it, right? And I think one of the kindest things that they ever did was try to make a joint venture happen with us, and we did. And so I will, I will be eternally grateful to, to Westbrook for being there and supporting us early days. And I think that if anybody can, can do that and try to do that with either former colleagues or employees or, or, or employers, that's a really, that, 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 that makes everything, it, it sort of makes everything tick. So that was the kindest thing that they've done for us, I think, is helping us start a business. I, I once got advice from someone and it was great advice from a, an, an old person we used to we used to do business with and, and it was pretty much sums up what you said, which was never ever burn bridges with anybody because you never know when they're gonna come in handy. <laughs> well, property is a small, small, small industry. That is the one thing I have absolutely learned over the course of 20 years is that I can guarantee you that people that I were, I mean, even just this morning, somebody said to me, oh, you know, this person who founded our business that we're looking at, it turns out she and I were at university together, right? And so you, you just, I mean, gosh, it's such a small business and a small world. So don't burn bridges. But at the same time, they didn't have to do anything that kind and they did. And so I think that has to do with the fact that you don't burn bridges. Absolutely. So there are two lessons in one. Absolutely. Mike, that's been so fascinating, kind of getting to know a little bit more about you, Castle Forge, and, and what you guys are doing at the moment. Is if, if someone wanted to get in contact with you or learn more about the business, what can they do? So I think one of the things that, that we chose to do a couple of years ago that really is paying dividends is we publish all of our research online. There's no paywall or no you know investor login or anything like that. So if you're interested in, in what we think about things, just go online. It's www.castleforge.com and go check out the insights page. You may agree, you may disagree, but nevertheless, you might get some good reading out of it. And then the other thing is just reach out to us. You know, if, if you're interested in, in joining the business or if you're interested in partnering with the business, I think info at Castleforge is one way. The other is just, you know, reach out to me on LinkedIn or something like that. I, I always love getting you know responses from from folks and and passing them on to the right people or the people responsible or maybe it's myself so we're very very open to anything and so just get in touch with us we'd love to hear from you brilliant and i'll make sure that we get links to all of those in the show notes so thank you very much mike it's been brilliant talking to you and i hope we can do it oh, again. same here rod really enjoyed it thank you very much